afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders. And um, in this series, as Gavin mentioned before, we're in a series called The Habits of Grace. And really we're thinking through how it is that habits build and reinforce worldview. And whether you're convinced of who Jesus is or unconvinced, it's worth thinking through your life and the amount of habits that you maintain and, and what worldview or what ideas they reinforce and build. Because we all have dozens of habits that we rehearse every day that build into us ideas that we then hold strongly. But the ones that we're looking through in this series are ones that accord with the gospel. And so we looked at stewardship, the idea of handling our finances as though they belong to God and not to us, of Christian community, that is uh, gathering regularly with God's people. And then this week, and just for this week, we're just spending one week on it, is gospel fluency, the habit of speaking Jesus into everyday life. And so we're going to dig into 1 Peter and to see what, what God's Word has to say about gospel fluency. So I don't know if you've ever tried to learn another language, but it's a difficult thing. I, the high school I went to was one of maybe three high schools in New South Wales that did Indonesian. And the reason I chose it was because I heard it was the easiest language that scaled the highest. So I was like, I'm in. I'm in. Free marks, it sounded like to me. But um, having learned it in high school, I rarely had any place to kind of put it into practice until when I was about 22, I actually went to Indonesia. And we didn't just go to Bali and get bintang singlets and cornrows. <laughs> we, went to, we went to Sulawesi uh, where there was, there was almost no other tourists. And so we stood out like a sore thumb. I went along, I'd brought a soccer ball with me as a way of kind of like connecting with like kids and stuff because we were doing kids ministry and that. And because I was white and fair and had a soccer ball, they called me David Beckham, which I was like, I mean, I was pretty chuffed with, really, like, to be honest. I was like, oh, guilty. You know, and even as I was preparing this, I was like, actually, since then, we both have daughters named Harper. So we are, I mean, pretty much the same person, like, <laughs> minus, you know, several hundred million dollars or whatever else it is that he's worth. But, um, but it, was a, it was an interesting trip in that sense um, because it was, there was a lot of kind of cross-cultural ministry. And it was hard work because very few people spoke English. So my Indonesian was being put to the absolute test. I gave a talk in Indonesian. It was just a short 10-minute talk. And I remember right afterwards, the feedback that our team leader gave me was he's like, did you know that you speak Indonesian with a Mexican accent? <laughs> I was like, does that, in a way, am I kind of trilingual now then? Is that how that sort of work? Can I claim that as well? But I just remember it being such hard work because you're having, even just making small talk was hard because you're double processing everything. You'd think in English, translate it into Indonesian, then speak it, hear something, translate it back into English, formulate a response. And it was just that. And that was just in small talk, day in and day out. I just found myself at the end of the day just exhausted. 
And I'm introverted anyway, and so I just find myself avoiding social situations or like slowly sneaking away because I just found it tiring. But it's not, it's not just me. Most people will tell you when you go into another context and you're trying to speak another language, you know, even if you were from that country originally and once spoke it fluently, it can be hard work. Becoming fluent in a language is hard work, but they say if you keep at it, what eventually happens is you stop double processing and you start to think in the other language and that's when you've hit fluency. When you stop having to translate everything, you can actually just think in the other language or even start to dream in the other language. You are then fluent and you can just speak. Your thoughts are being formulated using the tools of another language. What we're talking about today is becoming fluent in the gospel, translating the lordship of Jesus into everyday life and to do it and to make it such a habit that it actually becomes natural. That it's not a thing where you're constantly thinking, how can I jam it into this conversation? But as you bring the lordship of, of Christ to bear on all of life, it starts to become natural where it is that he's supposed to come up in conversation. As you speak to people who need to hear the hope of Jesus, you become fluent in the gospel and able to speak him into everyday conversation. And so I'm going to pray that as we get into the truth of 1 Peter 3, that we see how it is that we might grow in gospel fluency. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that the gospel is a message of hope, that it means good news. It's the good news of Jesus who died in our place to take our sin, to make us right before you, that we might be your adopted children, that we might be brought into the family of God, that we might be given life forever. And Father, we pray that we would understand deeply the truth of Jesus, that we might speak of him clearly in everyday conversation. And Father, we pray that you'll do this for the glory of your name. Amen. We really are focusing in, as kind of Gav read before, on basically one sentence in the book of 1 Peter. But in the Bible, we don't just pick, they're not like, you know, a Cadbury all sorts where you just pick individual bits out. It's more like an electrical wire. You don't just pick it up and chop out a section of it. You consider what it's connected to. It's dangerous just to pick up a wire and start chopping away. And so it's the same with verses in Scripture. We don't just pull them out of nowhere. We want to see what's connected to it, either before or after it. And so this book we read in 1 Peter 1, right at the beginning of the book, we get introduced to what the whole thing is about. Look what it says in the first sentence of this book, 1 Peter, the first letter from Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now, many of those places probably don't evoke much for you, especially if you didn't live in ancient Rome. Uh, but for those who were there, they knew where they were, and they knew that Peter was writing to a bunch of churches that were spread out kind of through Turkey and the surrounding territories all the way almost around to Greece. And Peter was, was basically team captain for the, for the disciples, the apostles, Jesus' group of, uh, of followers. And just like our national captain, he had a moment of disgrace and his moment was when Jesus was being arrested wrongfully, Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. And that very thing happened. As Jesus was being arrested and taken away, three people come up to Peter and say, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he denies him once, twice, and three times. And one of the people who asked was a small slave girl, the least intimidating of the lot. And even before her, he could not admit that he was a follower of Jesus. But he went on... He was restored in that ministry. When Jesus rose from the dead, he restored him to lead this group of apostles. 
And he went on to not only be unafraid of people's opinions, but unafraid of their fists. He actually went on to be a bold proclaimer of Jesus' word. And now he's encouraging this church to be exactly the same. He's writing to these people saying, stand firm, keep going. And look what he says in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. He says here, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous, if you are passionate for doing what is good? And the obvious answer is, well, lots of people. Lots of governments, corrupt governments, don't like do-gooders and whistleblowers. But not only that, I mean, Peter knows that there are people who are baying for his blood even while he writes this. So why is he saying, now who is there to harm you? What he's saying, it's rhetorical, right? What he's saying is like, look, if you're in with the God of the universe, really, I mean, ultimately, no one can take your life from you. Even if they can in this life, they can't eternally. You are immortal. And it was this very truth that gave him confidence to keep proclaiming the gospel even when he was threatened with death. In the book of Acts, which tells us the story of how the gospel went from this little small town sort of um, place called Jerusalem out to Judea, Samaria, and then throughout the Roman Empire. We see the beginnings of it in the book of Acts. And in chapter 4, sentence 20, uh, after Peter has been threatened and the group of disciples with him have been threatened, look what it says. It says, So they, these are the rulers and authority, uh, they, they called them and charged them, the group of the disciples, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter is like, look, you can tell us not to speak about Jesus, but we're just going to do it anyway. We can't help it. This is an ancient version of you do you and I'll do me and we'll see what happens. He just says, look, you can threaten us, you can beat us, you can imprison us, you've been doing it. But look, we're just going to keep talking about Jesus because we, we can't not. There is no other name by which people may be saved. And so we're going to keep speaking about him. So if you're going to keep doing this stuff, then you've got to do what you've got to do. But we're going to keep talking about Jesus. You think, man, this is, this is tough. How did he go from being terrified of people's opinion of him to being unafraid of the violence that they could do to him? Isn't that the case? I mean, how is it the gospel would be able to transform someone like this? To make someone unafraid, not only of the opinions of others, but what they can do to them. Isn't that the case that most people are terrified even just of the first one? I saw a little meme on Facebook this week that said, uh, imagine being over the age of 18 and still ordering vodka cruisers. Sorry if that's your game, by the way. Like, <laughs> I have no opinion, I have no skin in this game at all. But the top comment under it was, imagine being over the age of 18 and still caring what people think about you. Which makes me think that that person probably cared a little bit about their vodka cruises and was, you know, a bit touchy about it. But I've, I think that statement is probably the opposite. In fact, I would, I would put to you, maybe you can argue back the other way, but I think there are probably more people under the age of 18 who don't care about what others think about them than over. Babies, toddlers, they do whatever. They will go to the toilet in their pants in public. They don't care, right? <laughs> they have no opinion on others' opinions. Once you become aware of what people think of you, it really starts to affect your behaviour. I would say there's more over the age of 18 who care about what others think. And Peter was one of them, but once he came to understand the gospel, 
it just it completely flipped his world upside down. He, he started saying things, like it says here in 1 Peter 3.14, and he meant it. It says, but if you should have to suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. Be not troubled. He went from being worried about what people thought around him to, to unafraid to die for the gospel, and he did. How? What is it about Jesus that is so transformative that flipped this man's life upside down and continues to flip people's lives upside down? Well, look what he says next. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So here's what he's saying. There are two opposite things. He's saying, you know, don't be afraid of them. Being afraid of them is one thing. But the opposite, but the conjunction of contrast is, instead, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. So he's saying, if you honor Christ as holy, you won't be afraid of these, this group of people. How does that work? Why is it that honoring Christ as Lord, as holy, would change things? Well, the word holy in the Bible means set apart or different. And so to honor Christ the Lord as holy means to see Jesus not just as another idea or another philosophy or another therapy, but as unique, as different to anyone or anything else. Do you know that Christians in the first century were arrested under the Roman Empire under the charge of atheism? And the reason for it was that they didn't have statues or images of their God. And so the Romans thought, oh, these people don't believe in any God. That's their problem. That's, that's why they're dangerous and, and risky. But the reason Christians didn't have any statues or images was because they believed that God is holy. He's set apart. There is no one or nothing like him. If you make a statue of him, you actually diminish your vision of God. Nothing made by human hands could sufficiently communicate the holiness of God. God is set apart, is different, completely other. And so they refused to do it and they were charged with atheism. But here Peter is saying, set apart Christ the Lord as holy in your heart. Uphold him as different. Saying, so get a vision of Jesus where he is right-sized and if you do that, it will cast out fear. And look at what John wrote, the guy who partnered with Peter in, in that uh, passage that we read out in, in Acts. Look at what John writes in the last book of the Bible in Revelation. This is the vision of Jesus that he receives um, uh, it, it, while he's on the island of Patmos. In Revelation 1, 12 to 18, we read, Then I, this is John speaking, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. When this is a vision of Jesus as holy, as different, as completely other, as God himself. It says, Eyes like a flame of fire, feet like bronze, a voice like a tidal wave. 
holding stars in his hand, in the other hand holding the keys to death and Hades, the one who says, I died and I am alive evermore. I have defeated sin and death forever. And John is so terrified by just looking at him. In fact, his face is like the sun shining in its brilliance, such that it burns and scorches your eyes, and you can't bear it anymore, and he falls down as though he's dead. And Jesus says to him, fear not. He says to him, don't be afraid. When you see Jesus for who he is, and you realize that he is the God who saved you, who then is there to fear? That's what Peter got. I mean, consider the enormity of, of Jesus, this image of Jesus here. The inescapability of his power. I was, I was on a run one time. It happened to be the bay. It didn't have to be. Like, <laughs> there are other places that are run. But I, um, I don't know if I'm the only one who does this, but I saw a plane flying kind of low, and I started to think, oh, that's, that seems quite low. Is that kind of like, am I about to witness like a, a crash? Does anyone else think that one? Yeah, okay, great. Um, but the other thing that occurred to me then, the next thought was, I was like, if that was happening, I actually wouldn't know where to run. I wouldn't know whether to go forward or backward or left or right. Left or right, I can do that, left or right. Um, I wouldn't know which way to go. Would be sa- I'd probably just freeze. Because like, at that height, with that anomaly, I would have no idea where to go that was safe. And then the thought occurred to me, I was like, standing before Jesus on the last day, if you were enemies with him, that would be the feeling. Where, where could I possibly, this is his world and his universe, where could I possibly go to escape the wrath of God? But here, Jesus says to John, don't fear. He's laid down his life for this guy. John knows that Jesus died for him and set him free. His faith is in Jesus, which means his sin is washed away and he is made new and right before God. And so he can stand before the God of the universe and not fear. And it's this truth that set Peter free from fear as well. And so he can say to this church, look, don't fear. Once you see Christ as Lord and set him apart in your hearts as holy, once you see how enormous he is, you don't need to fear others and what they can do. Once you get a vision of it, you will know that he alone is the one that you live for. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, put it this way. He said, No single piece of our mental world is to be sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch over the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's a vision of the Lordship of Jesus. That's what it means to, to honour Christ as Lord in your hearts. And once we get this, then we see that fear starts to lose its grip on us. And this is the first element of gospel fluency, seeing that that Jesus, in all his glory, seeing that Christ is Lord, means that it casts out fear. Because the truth is, everybody fears something. doesn't matter how tough you appear, everybody is afraid of something. I was watching a doco years ago called uh, Britain's Hardest Debt Collector. I don't know if there's like a if there's an official body overseeing who's the hardest debt collector. So I guess he can just throw it out there. But look, it was, it was well hard. And, um, and in his little gym was a bunch of equally just hard men. And, um, and they, they kind of, I can't remember why it was, but you get introduced to one of them who's just particularly large. So mixed martial arts fighter, debt collector, standover man, whatever it is, you know, right? And, um, and you mean, he's just a monster of a man. He's like six foot five, and that's just wide. Right, he's just enormous, this enormous guy. And, um, and the backstory to him is he's a fairly troubled kind of soul. 
And, um, and when they're interviewing him, he's indicated that he's, uh, he had gashed himself and he pulls apart like the, the butterfly stitches, which is gross, and it's so deep you can almost see daylight on the other side. So it's just full on. He's just a monster of a man. But they, they kind of get to his story of how it is that he got into this kind of area of like, you know, mixed martial arts and also, you know, debt collection, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and he talks about that when he was a kid, he had a stepbrother who tormented him, tormented him, and made him feel afraid near constantly. And so he decided that he was never going to feel like that again. That every time he felt fear, it took him back to being that little boy who was afraid of his stepbrother. And he decided, I never want to feel like that again. So he built himself up to be as hard as he possibly could be. But even now as a grown-up, it continued to torment him. And every time he felt afraid, he went back to being that scared little boy. And as I watched the doctor, I realized, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone's afraid of something. Everyone is. I don't know if you've thought about this, but so much of human behavior is driven by what we fear the most. In fact, Kemi said that human behavior is driven really by the desire for four things. We either want power or control or approval or comfort. And we want those things because they're the answer to our deepest fears. If you fear powerlessness like that guy did, if you feel hu- fear humiliation, what do you want? You want power. You want people to respect you, to fear you. If you fear rejection, what do you want? You want approval. You want some tangible sign that I'm a good person, other people have testified to it. If you fear responsibility and stress, you want comfort and ease. If you fear uncertainty, you want control. You want to know I can absolutely control every single outcome and I'm ready for it. But the truth is, none of these things bring us wholeness in life. And all of these things find their answer in Jesus. Once you understand that Christ is Lord over all, that he's dealt with your biggest problem, your sin and rejection of God, and now you are made new in Jesus, then everything else comes under him. If you fear humiliation, then Christ is your answer. For in him you're immortal, and even though your days on earth are numbered, your days in heaven aren't. You need fear no humiliation, because in Christ you will ultimately be victorious. You will stand with him amongst the throng. Power is an illusion, but in Christ we are free. If you fear rejection, then Christ is your answer. He has died on your behalf for your sin that God may approve of you and not because of anything you have done so it can never be taken from you. The whole world could stand to condemn you, but it counts for none because God is for you. If you fear stress and demands, then Christ is the answer. There is no peace like the peace of Christ. Everything else is a distraction or an addiction, but in Him we find wholeness. If you fear uncertainty, then Christ is your answer. His death and resurrection have made sure your future. It is all in him. So once we understand, once we have a right-sized vision of Jesus, we'll see that all of our life's problems and issues really come down to seeing his lordship cover more of our life. Once you see that Jesus is the answer to every issue and problem, that it comes down to sin and the gospel of renewal and the cross, once you get that, Well, that's the first step of gospel fluency because once you understand that he is the answer to everything, then it becomes obvious that he is the answer to the problem that everyone else has around you as well. So you think about it like this. As we start to live out the lordship of Jesus in every area of life, it will become obvious where in conversations we need to bring up Jesus. Just recently I was talking with a friend and we were just going uh, getting some of the food for our kids. We were getting fish and chips. So it was just a you know, everyday kind of conversation. 
and we were talking about things about work and, um, and how he's finding his work. And he, like, he was finding it particularly stressful at, at this time. There were a lot of deadlines due, all this kind of stuff. And he said, how do you deal with um, the stress with your work? Do you meditate or anything? I said, oh, it's funny you say that. I don't, I don't meditate, but I try to start every day by just hearing from God, by reading his word and by praying. And I say, when I, when I do that, I find that it just gives me perspective that when I understand who God is and what he's done for me, it, it really changes how I relate to people and it changes to the fact that, look, I know that I'm out of control and he's in control and so I can trust him and it, it really transforms when I'm feeling stressed about things at work. And it was just an everyday kind of conversational moment but as we were talking about it, it became obvious we're to point him to Jesus because of how Jesus has, has brought... Uh, his lordship to bear on my life. I wonder if you've thought about how it is that the lordship of Jesus bears on every area of your life. Your finances, your work, your neighbourhoods, how, how it is that you handle relationships, how it is that you handle stress, how it is that you handle rejection. Have you thought how it is that the lordship of Jesus brings renewal and grace to every single area of your life? Because that is the first step in becoming gospel fluent. But there is another step. In this passage that we read out before in 3.15, it says, Honour Christ, Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. So he says there are two things, two elements. Set apart Christ as holy and then be prepared. Get a right-sized vision of Jesus. That's the first step. Without that, you can't short-circuit it. But then also prepare. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Because it is the case, often, that we find ourselves on the back foot. Even if you're someone who loves Jesus, who is growing, who every year on year, Jesus' Lordship is just covering more and more of your life, it can be the case that you just find yourself on the back foot when the moment comes in conversation. Years ago, when I was in a staff room, uh, it was myself and three others, and I knew all of them had, um, had real objections to Christianity. And they all knew that I was a Christian myself, and there was a newspaper, uh, one of the teachers would get the newspaper sort of delivered every day to the office. And on the cover of it was, um, it was a young, it was a story, this is a long time ago, so this is going to show my age. But Sophie Delezio, who's uh, 17 now, had just been hit with a series of tragedies that were completely out of the control. I think a car had crashed through uh, the front wall of the family home and was followed up by a bunch of other things. So she'd just been put through the ring and she was just a little girl. And, um, and one of the teachers read out the headline and then said... When I see stuff like this, it just makes me think there is no God. And it was almost, it wasn't, but it was almost as if on cue, and they all kind of went like, <laughs> like this, they said like, what do you think about that God boy? And, and I just, I just froze. And I, I kind of said nothing, because that would have been so uncomfortable, but whatever it was, I didn't really answer the question. I just found myself on the back foot. I just wasn't prepared. I mean, I, I feel like I understand and know the Lordship of Jesus, I've thought about how that bears on the issue of suffering, but I just wasn't ready to explain it in a way that was going to be with gentleness and respect and in a way that would be understandable. It is the case that you are to prepare. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. There will be times when it's just spontaneous, but there are other times when you really need to think through, open the Bible and think about what are the biggest questions that maybe I haven't looked into or that my friends and family actually have to Jesus how is it that I would answer them clearly and gently and respectfully? We need to be prepared. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, that sounds very salesman-like. 
So what, like now you're preparing like a Jesus elevator pitch, like where you can like, you know, get your whatever your three points out in under two minutes. But I think preparation goes with love. And if you don't believe me, just think about a best man speech at a wedding. When old mate gets up and he's half full of skewies and <laughs> is put he's put nothing down, he's, he's, he's banking on the fact that he's quite funny off the cuff and gets up and offers the first gag and it sort of goes flat and so panicking he starts to pull out some horrific stories and before you know it it's a 21st speech at a wedding which is completely the wrong vibe and then he realises he's way overcooked it, everyone's feeling stressed or you know, sweating or just gripping the edge of their seats so he decides to wrap it up by saying Nah, but seriously though, I, like Davos is best bloke ever, and um, and honestly, anything you ever need, like he's always there. It's all the superlatives, anything ever, always like, and just throwing it out there, which is like way overshoots it in the other direction, and then sits down. And the big problem with that is that oftentimes they're the best men because they really are best mates. And if you sat down and thought about it, he'd be able to say articulately why he respects this guy. But when you get up off the cuff, oftentimes what comes out is just trash. And it's often the case in terms of sharing the hope that you have. You need to think through, how would I say this clearly and helpfully? And it says here, with gentleness and respect, considering other people's worldview, considering their backgrounds or what they've been through, how it is that you would, you would speak clearly. Peter says, honour Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Prepare, think, read. Learn from people who are more articulate than you. Pick up books, study, ask others. You might be able to speak the gospel into everyday life. And so with this, landing this, there really are two things that I think are where this text leads us to apply. And the first one would be this. I think the battle for gospel fluency starts with another habit that we've talked about, and that's daily reading and prayer. The battle to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart begins every day, right at the beginning of the day. We are living in what one person has described as digital Babylon. That is, that most people in this room would watch somewhere in the order of 2,500 hours of secular narrative every year. That, that's, that's kind of a, a mid-level kind of effort. Some will be more, some will be less. Now, if you are at every single Sunday gathering here, and every small group every week, at best, you're probably clocking up somewhere near maybe like 200 hours. That is not going to be enough, is it? If you just do simple math on it, that is not going to be enough to have an overwhelming vision of Christ as holy. It's going to take more. And so the battle for gospel fluency, the habit of speaking about Jesus in everyday life, begins first thing of the day usually. But if it's not there, then wherever, just that you might be in the Word day in and day out, seeing Christ as He is, as He communicates Himself through His Word, as you speak back to Him in prayer, that's where it begins. And the second one is just having a crack. That's a very Australian way of putting it. Just, you just got to have a crack. Uh, you can see that, like I know in the passage it says, you know, be ready to give an answer for the hope you have. It makes it sound like someone's going to come up to you one day and go, um, please, sir, could you tell me about the hope that you have in Jesus? I, I, like, I've been a Christian for like 18 years. It's, it's not happened yet. I don't know if it's happened to you, but it, I don't think the day is coming. But there are opportunities in every day. I mean, every day we're talking about the things that matter to us most, and Jesus is the answer to all of them. 
And every day there are opportunities. you just got to put it out there. And so this is the challenge that we're putting out to the church. On Easter, that's when Burwood Public Gatherings launch. And so to sync up with them for the first series of the year right after Easter, we've got a series for three weeks called Questions for God. And so all we want you to do is to give you one week to go and ask the question as far and wide as you possibly can. If you had one question for God, what would it be? It's that simple. Just put it out there. Peter says, don't worry about getting beaten up. That's probably not going to happen anyway. Just have a go. In the, in, the, in the movie years ago called Three Kings, there's a line in it where he says, do the thing you fear the most and you get the courage afterwards. That's how it works. Don't wait till the right time. Just throw it out there and see what happens. And then what we'd love to do is on the, on the Facebook group to gather up all the responses and the top three questions that people have are the top three that we're going to answer. And we don't want to assume what people's questions are. We want to genuinely ask and to genuinely know what questions or objections people have regarding God. And so this is the challenge over the week to put that question out there to as many as you can and to see what comes of it. And to pray that as we answer those as a church, it might equip us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. Because the hope in Jesus is life-changing. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that just as Peter, we would have a vision of the holiness of Jesus, our King and Saviour, the one whose blood was poured out on our behalf, and that we might be able to see him rightly. And this might lead us then to live our lives under his lordship, to bring everything in life under the lordship of Jesus our finances, our relationships, our stresses, our worries, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, all of it under his lordship. And that as we do this, that it may be obvious how to point others to Jesus as well as they look for answers to life's biggest questions. And Father, we pray that as a church, as we look to hear questions and answer them with the gospel, that you might work, that you might strengthen us as disciples of Jesus and that you might make more disciples. And Father, you would do this, not that we would be glorified, but that you would be glorified in your church. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.